This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Christopher Parker, Executive Director of Operations at Centralized Healthcare Solutions, a company of the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, well, thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure to be with you. Before we dive into the questions, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yes, absolutely. So I am a clinical pharmacist employed at the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. I serve as the executive director of operations for our telehealth company, uh, Centralized Healthcare Solutions. Our team actually was uh, originated out of uh, some high-level research we've done through NIH focusing on team-based care, and uh, the expansion of telehealth has allowed us to uh, be able to put together this business model and, and offer our services to, to our business partners, uh, and so it's been a great opportunity. Well, fantastic. I'm excited to hear more about that. And I know, you know, there's a lot of different health systems across the U.S. trying to figure out the best way to troubleshoot virtual care and telehealth, especially in the heart care field. So, you know, this is this will be a really great interview. What are your top priorities today and how do you see them evolving in the next 12 months or so? Yeah, so for me, I I really have a high level interest in focusing on team based care and physician pharmacist collaboration. Uh, we've been able to take our years of, of research focusing on that type, that type of patient care model to expand it by using telehealth. And this has allowed us to increase patient access and ultimately uh, focus on decreasing the risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, and so for us, as, as we look forward for the next 12 months, uh, it, it's really concerning that nothing right now kills more Americans every year than heart attacks and strokes. Uh, And so if you look at the cost, over $200 billion uh, spent annually uh, for taking care of patients that have heart disease and and suffer from heart attacks and strokes, and then couple on that, we're over $100 billion in lost productivity. So anything that we can do to help these health systems, specifically primary care providers who uh, may struggle being able to offer the level of services to to reduce this risk is something uh, that we definitely prioritize. Uh, and then, as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, uh, diabetes, uh, which which is a cardiovascular risk equivalent, uh, there's you know, we're we're to the point now where more than 10% of our population in the United States are currently diagnosed with diabetes. And then you add on to that another 30 to 40% of people that have pre-diabetes and don't even, or don't even know that they have uh, issues with uh, diabetes. That's a huge percentage of the population that will ultimately be impacting these costs. And again, then that leads to more cardiovascular disease and those risks that come along with it. So a lot of our patients right now really have either pre-existing cardiovascular disease or they're at high risk for cardiovascular disease with things like uncontrolled high blood pressure, uncontrolled diabetes. And so being able to work with our partners to try to bridge that gap to give them more access to care and ultimately improve those outcomes. Something that that we really strive to to excel at. Another thing that has really come to the forefront for us specifically in the last uh, six to eight months has been that health systems are really struggling to implement um, a high-level telehealth program. You know, COVID brought a lot of bad things to us over the last Uh, 14 to 16 months, but one of the things it did do was lead to 
the expansion of telehealth as a covered service by uh, both Medicare and some state Medicaid programs and, and private insurance. And health systems were forced to jump into a mode of implementing telehealth uh, almost in real time. And what we're seeing with, with those that we partner with is that um, they really weren't able to implement that at the level that they wanted to. Uh, and, and as a result, they're, they're struggling to improve their telehealth model and be able to provide that level of care uh, that does then lead to improved outcomes and uh, better patient results. So you know, we've been focusing on telehealth for the last six to seven years. Uh, and so it's something we have a lot of experience doing um, and we can uh, really focus on helping these, these partner sites have a more robust system that is more ultimately more effective. And then, you know, uh, finally, one thing that, that I think is important for providers and patients both to understand is that many patients don't need to be seen in person to manage chronic conditions. And we've been able to show that by using a robust telehealth model and tight communication with the primary care providers or the health systems allows teams like ours to really integrate as just an extension of that healthcare team, ultimately improving things like blood pressure control, diabetes control, and, and then lowering the risk of overall cardiovascular disease. That's a great point and really interesting to see, you know, some of your findings in terms of being able to integrate the telehealth into, you know, a health system and how healthcare delivery is being uh, changed, especially with more virtual care. What do you see as some of the biggest challenges that you're facing or the industry is facing in terms of being able to deliver better care to patients? Yeah, and this isn't unique just to telehealth, but something that we uh, see is what we term clinical inertia, which ultimately some healthcare professionals and, and health systems just aren't taking those steps forward to change their day-to-day -day practice in order to, whether it's implement telehealth or more robust collaboration models. And so this, this idea of being able to really move that needle and focus on the outcomes of the patient. Uh, the other thing that really, uh, that, that a lot of the, the systems struggle with is um, this idea of uh, not being willing, or the, the whole fee-for-service uh, issue. So, you know, the, these health systems and, and even private practice groups have been so ingrained in this fee-for-service model with reimbursement, uh, whether it's Medicare or private insurance companies. So, see the patient, bill for seeing the patient, and move on to the next, where uh, higher percentages of insurance reimbursement are now being tied to outcomes-based performance. And so, it's been estimated that Medicare and private insurance companies are going to have better than 20 to 25% of their insurance reimbursement tied to improved outcomes. So now that's going to put health systems really at risk for upwards of a quarter of their reimbursement if they aren't able to show these improved outcomes and meeting these quality benchmarks and metrics. I mean, I really think that that financial impact on this health system is, is what's going to drive this type of change because if they don't change and continue in that old fee-for-service model, they will suffer financially. And it's something that they need to be getting on board with now before uh, even higher percentages of those reimbursement risk stratification models uh, are, are put into place. Got it. That, that makes a ton of sense. And for, you know, health systems or even smaller hospitals that 
are taking a look at this and saying, you know, I don't even know where to begin. Where's a good place where they can jump off? You know, likely they have some sort of telehealth in place, but when thinking about, um, you know, making sure that they've got the right things in place for heart patients, as well as, you know, thinking about the billing aspect of it, where's a good place to begin? Yeah, well, the the teams that we work with, health systems that, that we work with, the first thing we tell them is you got to understand where your limitations are. What are you doing now and where do you have opportunities to improve? Again, a lot of people, a lot of these health systems started providing telehealth as a result of COVID-19 uh, and they were literally using FaceTime calling patients uh, to do their visits. And so now they need to really sit down and focus on, okay, what are the requirements for providing telehealth? What are the reimbursement opportunities? Uh, are there restrictions in place now that maybe have expired uh, because some of those things have run their, their course after COVID? And so reaching out to groups and experts like our team or others that have uh, successfully implemented telehealth and say, okay, where identify where we're at now and where do we need to go to be able to do this long-term because it is now going to be part of long-term model of providing care. So recognizing that this change is going to happen. So you can either get ahead of the curve and do it now, um, or you can just stay behind and get lost in the dust for, because you're not willing to adapt. So identify where your struggles are and then work with those who have robust programs in place to put put themselves in a position to offer that high level of care with what will be the future now for a more telehealth uh, as far as a patient care model. That's great insight. Thank you so much, Chris, for going through that with us. Now, how are you thinking about the growth of telehealth and decreasing cardiovascular risk? Well, I think first of all is recognizing that not all health conditions, specifically cardiovascular related health conditions, need to be managed in person. Many of these conditions, whether it's hypertension, diabetes, heart failure, can be done remotely over the phone with patients. Uh, the advent of these home monitoring devices that have really uh, been able to allow teams like ours to look at uh, proper blood, blood pressure technique and home blood pressure monitoring, glucose monitoring, and, and recognizing that patients have the ability to do that. Yes, it tends to be an older population, um, but many of these patients have the capacity to use these uh, devices and report it back. Uh, something that we're working on right now is even using a, a texting platform where we, where we send text alerts to patients. Um, we can set it up very tailored to the specific situation, ask them to take a home blood pressure, they text it directly back to us, and then that gives us real-time data as to how to manage that disease. We started to do a little bit of the same with diabetes and getting home blood sugar monitoring uh, patients with heart failure who were doing daily weights to adjust uh, diuretic dosing based on symptoms. Uh, so being aware that this can be managed remotely and that we don't have to see these patients face-to-face, -face, we just have to come to that realization uh, that that is an effective way to provide care. I think something else that's important, and I really started this early on in my career was doing home visits, that patients in the comfort of their home, own home are often more willing to share information that they wouldn't share when they're in the, in the clinic. So they have to come in, they got to find a place to park, they got to get it, get into the uh, exam room. But if you're allowing them to do that at home where that is their comfort zone, they're oftentimes more willing to share more information. So it just makes it even that more uh, robust of uh, being able to 
then manage whatever that chronic condition is and understand the barriers that they may be exhibiting that they don't remember to mention to you when they're sitting in the clinic in that exam room. Um, and then I think uh, the third thing that comes to mind is challenging ourselves as healthcare providers to really engage the patients in shared decision-making. Uh, it's their health. We want them, we want to encourage them that they should be taking charge of their health. We're here to guide them, uh, provide them the best information possible, and then allow them to be part of that decision-making as to how they want to move forward uh, and then tailor our approaches appropriately. Got it. That's so fascinating to think about in terms of, you know, how patients might be more willing to open up or um, be better able to respond to, to questions from their house versus in the um, medical office space. And it, then too, when you talk about the shared decision-making, have you seen patients pretty willing to, um, you know, take that leap and, and become part of that process versus, you know, the expectation that they'll just do what the doctor tells them? Well, I think that that's a, a misnomer when, when, it used to be that patients would just do what their doctors tell them. And now what we're finding is they go in, see their doctor, the doctor tells them to do this, they go home and they don't do it. And then the doctor doesn't find out until six months later when they show up for follow-up. Whereas we may be communicating with these patients every two to four weeks just for follow-up or, or management of a condition. Uh, and then when we pose the question to them, okay, your blood pressure is under control, Here's some options. What's your goal to achieve here when it comes to managing your blood pressure? And which of these options do you feel most comfortable with pursuing? And then we will work with you to hopefully have a successful uh, outcome with whatever choice that that patient has. Now, yes, are there times as, as their uh, healthcare provider that we may have to encourage them maybe one way or the other? Absolutely. But really, uh, if you allow them to take charge and, and be part of that decision, they're much more likely to engage in it uh, when you, uh, in between your follow-ups. And then again, that's just better health outcomes for them. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. Thank you so much. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, can you share three pieces of advice for emerging leaders today? Yeah. And I, having thought about this, um, you know, it, it really made me uh, reflect back on what I felt was really good leadership and, and what mentors have shared with me over, over the time. I mean, the first thing that came to mind was really to create a positive culture and what, what we call the we versus me mentality. Um, you know, each team really is consisted of a sum of their parts. And so uh, you could have extremely high level performers on your team, but if you have one or two people that are low performers, they tend to pull your high performers down. And so, you know, as a leader, being able to recognize that, try to encourage your low performers to be better performers. Um, and ultimately, if they're not able to meet your expectations, uh, you have to be able to address that uh, because it does negatively impact the rest of your team. So again, that whole idea of a we versus me mentality and, and setting the culture. A second thing that comes to mind is as a leader, you got to be able to identify high quality talent hire them on your team, and then get out of their way and let them do their job. Uh, sitting, to micromanage somebody because you're not confident that they'll do what you're hoping that they will accomplish just means that you don't have a, a high level of trust in them. Uh, so, you know, find a good person and then just get out of their way. Uh, because as leaders, we, we don't know everything. Our job is to put good people in positions and allow them to succeed. And then the third thing that comes to mind, this is something that's really hit home for me the last few years is, 
Uh, don't fear the day that you become the one that others ask for advice. I used to find myself always going to mentors and, and other experts asking for their advice about things. And now I've become that person. Um, and it was scary at first because people were relying on my expertise for uh, guiding their decision making. And I just had to come to terms with that's okay. Um, I've finally got to that point where uh, my uh, scope of work and, and things that I've done uh, over my career uh, obviously are uh, am beneficial enough that people come to me for advice based on my experiences. So don't be afraid when that day comes. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fantastic discussion and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Same for me, Laura. I really appreciate the time.